You're listening to Houston. We have a podcast where we talk everything and anything movies and their reviews, and this is episode 13. Hey everybody, show here. Welcome to Houston, we have a podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. Houston, we have a podcast is produced every two weeks for your enjoyment, and show notes can be found at houstonwehaveapodcast.libsyn, which is spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Come back often and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite feed or on iTunes, and you can follow me on Twitter at S-N-S-A-L-L-I. That's S-N-S Alley. Since we did Star Wars The Last Jedi last week, and I'm, I, I still kind of have some a number of thoughts on that movie. I've seen it a few more times since then. Total of three times now. Probably will see it more, if I'm being completely honest. I saw The Force Awakens seven times in theaters, so I mean, got some catching up to do. I won't talk about Star Wars here, but I, I guess because we did Star Wars last week, I do want to get back to doing two movies in every episode going forward, unless it's another big-time one, but... You know, that probably won't happen until the next Star Wars movie in a, in a few months or whatever. But this week's episode is going to focus on two mediocre movies, if I'm being honest. The theme portion of Houston, we have a podcast has kind of fallen by the wayside. So I thought this might be a fun way to kind of reintroduce the theme, quote unquote, part of each episode. So the theme for this episode is bad movies. So if that deters you from listening to the reviews... Well, you will you can stop now and know that I think both of these movies are not so great, but we'll talk about them in a little more detail. So the two movies on the docket for today are Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle, and Bright, which is on Netflix. But let's get into it. I don't want to spoil anything other than the fact that you know I already think they're not so great, but regardless, we'll start with Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle. That is, of course, the very famous song, Welcome to the Jungle by Guns N' Roses. You know, oddly enough, this song isn't actually in the movie. I mean, it is, but it plays over the credits. Like, it's not actually in the actual movie itself, if that makes sense, which I thought was kind of strange. But then again, they basically use this song in every single trailer, right? So I guess they figured they didn't want to overuse the song, and it was, it was perhaps a bit too on the nose. I mean, people were saying that since the movie actually was announced right so i guess it's not really a big deal i just thought it was funny that the guns and roses welcome to the jungle song which is probably one of the most famous rock songs probably ever uh isn't in the movie at all but whatever jumanji welcome to the jungle i'll stop saying welcome to the jungle from now on because it's a little tedious but jumanji 2017 is directed by Jake Kasdan, a uh, bit of a younger director, not super known. He is his father is very famous, Lawrence Kasdan, probably most well known for his uh, work on Star Wars and Indiana Jones. You know, he wrote uh, or co-wrote, I suppose, The Empire Strikes Back, uh, Return of the Jedi, Star Wars: The Force Awakens. 
He's apparently working on Solo, a Star Wars story. He he helped write uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. So, you know, he's he's a pretty darn famous, I would say. Uh, but he did not direct this movie. His son did. But that, I suppose, was young Jake's entrance into Hollywood, which is pretty cool. But Jumanji is... Um, I almost said the, the subtitle there. But Jumanji is i think exactly ultimately exactly what it what it was marketed as a silly kind of romp through the jungle if that makes sense it takes every box of every trope along the way and i and i've i've heard a lot of people saying it's like the breakfast club mashed up with something else and i find that kind of strange because first of all the Breakfast Club was largely responsible for for creating many of the tropes that are present in modern day media about high schoolers and so I find it difficult to agree that it's really all that related when pretty much every movie does that these days. I mean, in that case, we can say that any movie that has a spaceship battle is like Star Wars and any movie that has any sort of fantasy element like elves or dwarves is like Lord of the Rings. And we'll get to that when we talk about Bright, but I think that's what I mean. But I don't think... I can see the similarities, but when, like I said, every movie has some similarities to The Breakfast Club when they have a, something about high schoolers in them, I find it hard to take that point a little seriously. But regardless, that's a pretty minor thing. Uh, it's just It was just interesting that people were talking about that, right? Now, the comedy in the movie, which is what you will go see that movie for, right? That is the draw of that movie. The comedy was almost both the strong point and the weak point, if that makes sense. It was really funny at times, but it was almost expected, as the humor that came from Jack Black and Kevin Hart were exactly what you as a viewer were used to, right? That's not to say it wasn't funny. At times, I was I was absolutely cracking up, but... Ultimately, it was relatively safe. Then, and there were some jokes that did go on too long, I felt. And so the major plot point in this movie, which is in the trailer, is that the characters are all sucked into Jumanji itself. And Jumanji has now reimagined itself as a, uh, a video game instead of a board game. And the characters, these uh, teenagers who are all in detention, you know, they decide to slack off while they're in detention, play this video game that's sucked into it. And they appear as the avatars they've picked. So Jack Black is the self-absorbed teenage girl. The Rock is the kind of nerdy boy. Kevin Hart is the jock. And uh, Karen Gillan is the, I guess, nerdy bookworm girl, I suppose. But they're, they're all kind of some trope of some sort or the other. And like I mentioned, Jack Black is a self-absorbed teenage girl. And when she discovers she has a penis for the first time, the joke about it was funny, but it just goes on too long. I mean, I get it. Dick jokes can be funny, but when they devote into a five plus minute scene to the joke about them showing her how to pee, it's just a little too much, you know? I get it. I, I get it. The, the toilet humor can be funny, but when it just goes on and on and on, it just drags a little bit. Chemistry-wise, there there are certain pairings in movies that you know, no matter what the movie is about, will have that chemistry if you see those two names on the posters, for example, right? I think Jonah Hill and Channing Tatum is one recent pairing at, at least Seth Rogen and James Franco are another such recent pairing. I think you get what I mean. And honestly, for me the Rock and Kevin Hart are up there. I don't really care what movie they're in. I don't really care what it's about, but after seeing Central Intelligence last year and Jumanji this year, I'm pretty much in. I'm I'm down, you know? Sign me up for whatever they're doing no matter how dumb it is. I mean, they they probably should have put Kevin Hart in Baywatch and maybe it wouldn't have been so putridly horrible. I mean, it was it was arguably one of the most unfunny comedies I've ever seen. Uh, but anyways, this is not a Baywatch review. And one, one of the most remarkable parts of this movie, 
honestly, is that Karen Gillan and Jack Black just slide in there without much trouble, if any at all. They're, they're both really funny, they're hilarious, and they have some really great scenes, not to mention their own chemistry with each other and with The Rock and Kevin Hart is pretty fantastic because The Rock and Kevin Hart have some have a storyline of their own in the movie and Karen Gillan and Jack Black, because if you think about it, Karen Karen Gillan is, is being played by, or I, or I should say, is really playing a high school girl in this extraordinarily attractive woman's body and Jack Black is similar. She's like a really hot girl in an overweight middle-aged man's body, right? So they're both women. They know they're both women. So they all have, they have scenes together quite often and they're, they're great together. They're really funny. And I, I think the climax of the movie was about two high schoolers kind of falling in love. I mean, yeah, sure. The climax of the movie was them escaping from Jumanji, but the kind of narrative climax of the movie was about these two high schoolers, the rock and Karen Gillan's characters. And I just, it wasn't that interesting, I felt. You, you kind of know none of them were going to die. It was a children's movie. So the stakes, even though they had video game-like lives, seemed relatively low, I suppose. The scene where The Rock and Karen Gillan make out for the first time was really funny, but it was just kind of silly, I guess. I said at the beginning, were there any surprises? No. Was there anything so funny that it's necessary to see right away? No. But it was a fun time for an hour and a half Two hours? Yeah, sure. It was one of those movies that could have had nothing to do with the Jumanji IP, and it probably would have been exactly the same, but it was a fun nostalgia trip nonetheless. I mean, there's a few Robin Williams references. There's a few other references to the Game Boy from the first movie once the action gets going, which is kind of fun too. But I mean, you know, ultimately, it is the kind of movie I feel you probably should just watch on Netflix because, and that's not a bad thing. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because. It's just, I, I feel like if you go into this with expectations that it's the comedy of the year, you will be let down. It's not that. It is, I feel like if you go in with relatively low expectations, you will be relatively satisfied. And that doesn't make it the worst movie I've ever seen. It's, it's okay, It certainly is not the worst movie I've ever seen. I shouldn't even imply that. It's a reasonably fun outing at the theater. I went to see it with my sister and my cousins, and that, that was fine. That was good enough for me. That's the kind of experience I expect for that kind of film. It was no, you know, Star Wars or anything like that, but it was fun, and I enjoyed myself. And I, I suppose for those kind of movies, that's all you can really ask for, right? So if you like the kind of humor that The Rock and Kevin Hart and Jack Black bring in their typical comedy outings, I feel as though you will like this movie. There is something to be said for The Rock playing kind of against his type and similarly Kevin Hart playing against his type. Like Kevin Hart is usually the kind of screechy small guy because that's who he is in real life and The Rock is the kind of macho badass. And they are those tropes, characters, people in this movie. But because you know that The Rock is really a scrawny teen deep down inside. And because you know that Kevin Hart is really a 6'5 football player deep down inside, that makes it that makes the jokes that they regularly make all the more funny because often, you know, you'll see The Rock looking off as like an intrepid explorer looking off to the horizon. And then you see the, the camera will kind of focus on him alone and he'll say, don't cry, don't cry. We, we're, we're not at school. Don't cry. Like, and, and, and that is what makes a lot of the comedy 
a little more surprising and a little more funny than their typical outings, if that makes sense. I don't want to spoil anything if, if you are going to see this movie, but I do really like the, the generally that kind of humor a little more just because it's something different. It's a little different for those guys. Jack Black, not so much, but because he's playing a teenage girl, they're com- they're, they're, they mine more than a few laughs, and he probably is the actor that steals the movie the most, I think. But regardless, like I said, if you like these kind of humor, you will like Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle. So when I went to go see Jumanji, I went to see that movie in theaters the day it came out, actually, on the Thursday it came out. So, you know, it comes out on the Friday and you can see the advanced screening on thurs- on the Thursday. I actually went to see this movie on Christmas Day. And uh, I suppose my tradition of seeing movies with my family on Christmas Day has not improved as last year we saw Assassin's Creed and that movie was crap too. So, I mean, maybe le- a little less than lucky with the Christmas Day movies. So we went to see this movie the, kind of relatively early, kind of around 7 or 8 o'clock. And we got back home, me and my sister and my two cousins, one of them, one of whom is living with me and the other who's visiting from Florida, Orlando, Florida. And we got back to my parents' house where we were all staying for a few days. And my cousin said, hey, you know, that movie kind of sucked. Let's watch something that looks a little more fun. And I said, yeah, okay, of course. I love watching movies. You guys love watching movies. Let's do it. What do you guys want to watch? And my cousin looked at me and he said, let's watch Bright. And I said, I have never heard of this movie. You know, do we have to go out to watch it? Do I have to get it off of iTunes or something like that? You know, how do we watch it? And he said, no, it's on Netflix. We can watch it right now if you want. So, you know, we popped some popcorn. We got some chocolate and whatever. We put it on uh, my laptop, put it on the dining room table while my parents are watching a movie uh, on the TV. And me and my sister and my cousins watched Bright. And that's the movie I want to do next, Bright on Netflix. I find it such a fascinating movie for a number of reasons. I already said in the kind of intro to this episode that I don't think this movie is very good. Frankly, I think it's worse than Jumanji. And frankly, I think it's a lot worse than a lot of movies out there. But we'll get into that in a second because it's it, it, the, the the way this movie has been approached by both the media, by people, and everyone in between is very interesting because it's such a uniquely... Such a unique project, I guess. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that it's on Netflix. So let's get into the review and I'll bring all of that Netflix stuff up. So without further ado, Bright. We're broken people now. We're burning now. So cold and bleeding now, now, now. Gonna let you down. interesting movie i feel like 10 15 years from now when disney has taken over the world we're gonna look back and there will be there will have been papers written about bright because it's such a fascinating case about how movies are made we'll get to that in a second because i want to talk about the actual movie and the criticism of the movie and stuff before before that this is, this is for me the first Netflix movie I've ever watched, okay? I've never watched any of the other Adam Sandler movies that he made for Netflix, and I probably won't going forward, but this one piqued my interest uh, due to the setting. So for those not aware, Bright takes place in modern-day Los Angeles, but in an alternate reality where the fantastical creatures of fiction, I guess, elves, dwarves, orcs, fairies, centaurs, etc., dragons, 
are the other races that share the earth with humans and thus are integrated into society as you might imagine. You know, so like think think about a world where like five, ten thousand years ago, humans and elves and dwarves and orcs fought in some massive war. And, you know, whatever, however the war ended, it ended. But like, these creatures, along with humans, occupied the surface and the underground parts of Earth. And so now we're in 2017, and the world is much as, you, as it is today, except orcs and elves and dwarves and fairies and centaurs are all just as normal as humans, except... I mean, they're, they're normal in terms of everyone is aware and is used to them. It's just... I, I, I guess I'm... I should just get right into it. The filmmakers decided that the fact that there were minorities, because I guess it's implied that these fantastical creatures are are, are just as much um, endangered, I guess, as you might imagine they would be. Like humans are still the the most populous species on Earth. At least that's what impl- that's implied to me. If I'm wrong, someone please correct me. But that's that's what I got from the movie setting in the first little while. And I guess the filmmakers decided that this would be ripe. For an allegorical tale of racism and intolerance at the hands of the police, very topical, of course, but instead of black people and other minorities being targeted by the police and experiencing police brutality, it's the other races that are getting stepped on. And it's an interesting, if if extremely heavy-handed, in every possible way, take on racism and intolerance, especially because... Will Smith plays one of the two main characters, and he is the one dealing out much of the racism that we see, at least. Ironic because, of course, he himself, in this role, is a black police officer. Right? And, of course, Will Smith is the massive draw. There are some other famous people in here in this movie as well, but Will Smith, of course, is the primary reason I bet most people watched this movie. Um, Unfortunately for him, he kind of has extended his streak of crappy movies a little further with this. I feel like the only good movie he's made in in recent memory was Concussion, and even that movie was, like, okay, you know? Anyways, I mentioned in place of black and brown people getting the shaft in this film, it's the other races. Specifically, it's the orcs, right? And what's weird is how they're portrayed as gangbangers. You know, they're sitting on steps, they're drinking out of paper bags, they're wearing bandanas and sports jerseys, they're threatening to people, they, like, go to... We only really ever see them in clubs and in, like, doing negative things and doing drugs and stuff. And it's not like they try to make this unique, right? You don't see any elves who are doing this. You don't see any dwarves who are doing this. I mean, you, one would argue you might not see any dwarves in the movie at all, but you don't see any fairies or centaurs doing this. It, it, it's just they just shifted every single stereotype from black and brown people onto these fictional characters and then just changed the word, like, you know, changed the N-word and, and all the other racist monikers about the orcs, Right. And it's super weird because it's almost like that meant from their perspective that it was okay. And don't get me wrong, I I understand why they did it like that. I just think the execution was poor. I guess it just, to me, a not-white person, it smacked of white people trying to put a brave new spin on something that's very real to a lot of other people. Maybe maybe I'm off target here. Maybe that's like a little preachy or something, but... I guess as someone who has experienced racism in, in his own personal life on like a relatively common basis, it's hard to kind of watch a movie like this and think to myself, wow, like they really, they really, they really did something cool here with the fantasy stuff when it's more just, I don't know. It just seems a little lazy, I guess. And it's hard to avoid talking about the heavy handed takes on racism and whatnot because it's so deeply a part of the movie and 
there's some stuff about having to get a magic wand, and yes, they're actually the magical MacGuffin is actually called capital M magic, capital M wand. So the evil female assassin elf can't raise the Dark Lord, and yes, the major villain of the movie is called the Dark Lord, capital D, capital L. But it's not that even that interesting because we never even get a hint of the supposed Dark Lord. We never see him. I mean, the main the main villain in this movie is this email, e- evil female assassin elf. But because we never see the Dark Lord, like is he like Sauron or something? Like what is he? What did he do in the past? Why is he so important? Is he the devil? What does he do now? Is he alive? Is he real? Is it just like is it like believing in God and they think that by using this magical wand he'll like it'll it, you know it's like Jesus or something or is it an actual real entity trapped underground in like some magic dimension like I don't know and I frankly don't care anymore because they didn't make me care enough right maybe that's a silly complaint but I feel like I should care more about that kind of stuff and and the the story was told so poorly that I almost feel bored by it right? Uh, I don't know. I, I'll, I'll say this. The, the, one of the most positive things about this movie were the visuals. The visuals are so cool. They are really, really cool. And the makeup and the prosthetics and all of that they put into the characters are so awesome looking. Those parts of the films are easily, easily the best parts in this entire production. It's just all unfortunately bogged down by the storytelling, which by contrast is easily the worst part. Jacoby, uh, the other character, so the, the, the second lead, played by Joel Egerton, who is the orc's part, orc partner of Will Smith's character's ward, is probably the standout actor here. And Egerton usually gives him solid performances, so no surprise there. It's just filled with so many tropes, just like Jumanji is, really. Ward being the only clean cop in a precinct of dirty ones, even though he's grumpy? Check. The only other honest cop? A minority? Check. Does he die very easily? Check. Heroic deed, the character does, come back to help them out in a crucial moment? Check. There are even these two characters, uh, the two henchmen of the main villain, that like the evil assassin elf, she has these two kind of like hench people, as a man and a woman, and uh, also evil elves, and they go out and they just butcher people by the boatloads, you know? They kill an entire house of like eight people or something in like 30 seconds, then they go on to kill an entire group of gangbangers without a single scratch. They, they, they storm, the three of these people storm a nightclub where Will Smith and Joel Egerton, Ward and Jacoby are hiding. They're kind of running away from the, the uh, gangbangers because they, have the, they are in possession of the magic wand, patent pending, I guess. But um, they're, they're kind of penned into this like magical strip club and these like gang comes comes to kill them so they can take the, the magic wand and these two assassins like murder the crap they like they kill like 30 people without a single scratch blow up the bar then they kill an entire armed SWAT unit and then to survive the destruction and explosion at a gas station right so they do, they do all of this over the course of the movie and then the movie ends with the two cops Ward and Jacoby our two protagonists they're very badly injured by the end of the movie they've been beaten they, they got their ass kicked throughout the whole movie and then they, these two guys these two like random cops basically kill these ultimate badasses in about what five minutes at the end of the movie I mean come on who thought who thought that was a good idea or a believable idea I mean like I'm more than willing to suspend my disbelief for like really cool stuff and then they just die, like, in the lamest way possible. It's so lame. Like, it's so boring. I don't know. It's just it's just silly, I guess, right? 
And I suppose it would be appropriate to mention here that the director of this film is David Ayer, director of such Oscar fare as Suicide Squad. <laughs> Yay! I, I don't know. Honestly, this movie was so much better than Suicide Squad in pretty much every conceivable way. But considering that's an extraordinarily low bar, maybe it's not such a big deal. It had even still more problems beyond what I've mentioned, including some weird editing, more odd story decisions, you know, that kind of thing. I still don't in- entirely understand the significance of being blooded as an orc. They talk about how Jacoby is not blooded, right? Um, and, and they never really explain what that means or how he becomes blooded other than some scene at the end where I think I under- I think it's it's really just like an orc speaks for you and he like sheds blood on your behalf. I think that's what it is. But they devote, and they devote several scenes to impress upon the audience that our protagonist is not a blooded orc, and then he does get blooded, but then I don't know what that means or what has changed about it other than Jacoby wanted to be blooded and that he's happy that he is now such. But I don't, what, what does it mean? I, I don't know. Is he just an adult now? Because I don't think that's correct because he's obviously an adult when we see him. He's a friggin' cop, right? I don't know. It's a strange, it's a very strange thing that they can they kind of just introduce and then like leave uh you know i looked up some more de- details about this movie and preparing for this podcast and i learned that david Ayer uh was a writer for for training day antoine fuqua directed that movie and that may seem like a complete non sequitur but i promise you knowing that going in would almost make a lot more sense watching this movie because it's a very training day-esque sequence late in the film uh and i kind of mentioned it where Jacoby does a heroic deed where that, that kind of help, comes back to help them out in a crucial moment. And if you remember training day, there's a moment in the movie where early, very, very early on the, uh, Ethan Hawke's character, his, his character is the honest cop, right? And he helps like a little girl or something who was being mugged or something like that. And the girl, like, he, you know, makes sure the girl gets home safe and whatever. We don't see her again until the very end of the movie where we learn right before, uh, Denzel Washington's character is about to have like these gangbangers that work for him, I guess. Uh, snuff out Ethan Hawke's character the little girl sees his like wallet and says hey that's the man who saved me and then they spare his life and so on and so forth right and it's almost like David Ayer like remembered this and was like hey Max Landis writer of Bright can you please uh, put in this exact thing into my movie and will this film it pretty much the same way I mean did he just do it because it's a trope when it's easy I mean finding out about that afterwards almost made the movie seem even lazier than it already was which is kind of funny to be completely honest and as a kind of aside, one of my favorite little things in this movie was actually the mention of sports. I know, surprise, surprise. But they make a lot of mentions in this movie that a lot of orcs play in the NFL and that most defensive lines in the NFL are made up of orcs. And I think that's awesomely hilarious. I would love to come back to this universe if for no other reason that I could get a good look at some orcish football, which is, by the way, I will mention as a video game fan i thought blood bowl the video game was that and it was not that at all i thought blood bowl was going to be like madden but with like fantasy creatures it is not even kind of like that so if you're thinking if you thought the same thing like me that madden was like or that blood bowl was a madden with like fantasy creatures it's not that and don't buy it but um to go back to the movie is a pretty cool idea I know it was a throwaway thing that really has no bearing on the movie at all. It's just kind of funny to imagine. I mean, J.J. Watt, for example, defensive end slash tackle for the Houston Texans. I mean, he's basically an orc in real life in terms of how insanely strong and terrifying he is. So can you imagine an entire defensive line like J.J. Watt? Can you imagine a defensive line made up of humans trying to block orcs that are bigger than J.J. Watt? I can't. But I digress. Not, not really important. And ultimately, Bright 
is a mediocre movie. I said that at the beginning. I'll say it again now. It's not good. So many people are crying about it's weird how the critics are being paid to crap on a Netflix product or that they're trying to push an agenda or whatever. And I think the truth is far easier to digest. So they took an interesting premise and made it into a relatively kind of meh movie. I mean, trust me, the world is not out to get you. There's no big conspiracy. This movie is just not that good. Not that big a deal, you know? And last thing is the idea, and I said I would talk about this in a second and I ended up just giving the whole review, but I want to talk about the Netflix thing real quick, right? Netflix put this movie out on their own service Kind of like a straight-to-video. I know that's not what it is technically, but, you know, it's straight to your streaming services versus it going straight to theaters for a theatrical run, right? And it's not a good movie. I think I've made that pretty clear. But still, according to Nielsen, over 11 million people viewed Bright in North America in its first three days of release. Over 11 million people. And you can count me within that population, certainly. And maybe even more if, like, I'm not sure how Nielsen compiles their data, to be completely honest. I mean, maybe it accounts for what I did, for example, where I watch it with, like, with uh, three other people. I don't know. Um, Maybe they're assuming that anytime any one sing, maybe maybe it's 11 million, like, clicks on Bright or 11 million, like, instances of bright went finished from the beginning to the end so maybe it's more than 11 people if 11 million people if you if you kind of imagine that most of these people probably didn't watch it by themselves but regardless it makes me it makes me think though right because a lot of, uh, because a sequel has already been greenlit it was greenlit even before the movie came out and it was kind of reaffirmed i think yesterday or the day before that it is getting a sequel for sure it's already been greenlit no word as to who is coming back or who is uh who is definitely coming back so like, we don't know if Either Will Smith or Joel Egerton is coming back, but we know for a fact that writer Max Landis is not returning because allegedly they paid him about $3.5 million to write this movie, which is, I think, one of the highest salaries ever paid to a screenwriter for a movie like this. But, of course, Netflix can do that kind of thing. Uh, But they're not asking him to come back. Not that I'm really surprised. I mean, if the movie is going to be this crappy anyways, I mean, there's no real sense in hiring someone for $3.5 million you can hire me, Netflix, if you're listening to this, hire me, I'll write Bright 2 or Too Bright or Very Bright or Brighter, whatever you want me to call it, I'll call it, pay me like $100,000, I'll write your movie, yeah I will, but uh, think about it, right, whatever the movie is, how many of those 11 million people would have dropped what, 13 to $15 for a ticket and then $10 for popcorn and then $5 for a drink to go see this movie in theaters? How many of those 11 million people would have done that? Considering it always has looked, even from the trailers, mediocre at best. Probably not a lot, right? Probably not a lot if any, I don't want to say if any, I'm sure some of those 11 million people would have gone to see it. I probably would have eventually just to see it so I could crap on it, frankly. But I mean, I, I tried to keep an open mind going into this movie and it really was not that great. And so... It just makes me wonder about the model that Netflix is putting out there, right? I mean, it's not exactly Netflix's model to operate the same way as cinema has, because if you think about it, the majority of people who have a subscription to Netflix are not thinking to themselves, hey, you know, I really I really am paying $9.99, let's say, for watching Bright. You're not thinking to yourself, oh man, I paid $10 for this. You're thinking to yourself, this is free because you've already paid that $10. It's almost like a sunk cost, I would, I, almost, I guess, right? 
Because when you watch House of Cards or when you watch Orange is the New Black or Mindhunter or American Vandal or any of the movies on Netflix, right? You're not thinking to yourself, wow, I paid $10 for this. I paid $10 for that. I paid $10 for this. You're thinking to yourself, wow, I can't believe I get all this content for just $10. So that's why I think it's so much easier for people to watch something like Bright because it's not that great a movie versus kind of intentionally going to the movie theater and spending that same amount of money for for just that movie, right? So it's interesting to me because Netflix, of course, doesn't operate like a cinema does, but I can't say that the cinemas are particularly worried if this is the kind of products they're putting out, maybe. But I hope that Bright 2 is good, brighter. I hope it's called Brighter. That's what I hope it's called. But I mean, you know, probably be something like super uncreative, like Bright colon the orc war something super stupid like that but regardless if you're if you're interested by fantasy stuff if you've played the tabletop rbg shadow run if you like the dresden files or you know if you just want to watch something new just give bright a chance i guess because a lot of people seem to think that the critic scores are a little too harsh and i mean like i said about jumanji it's not the worst movie i've ever seen but it's certainly not great it's pretty like underwhelmingly mediocre i would say but if you're interested in fantasy and in orcs and, you know, orc, or if you've ever been curious about and you don't know what the Dresden Files or Shadowrun or whatever are, then sure, watch Give Bright a Chance because you might be pleasantly surprised, but I mean, I doubt it. That's it for me today. A few shorter reviews than usual. Not that that's a bad thing. Uh, a little more concise. Maybe we can keep them a little more concise from now on. Um, I, as for the next few movies for the podcast, I can definitely tell you what they're going to be. I really want to see, and I already have my tickets to see the disaster artist, um, James Franco, Dave Franco, but the making of the room by Tommy Wiseau, a real life movie you can see, you know, right now, if you wanted to, uh, very famously as the worst movie ever made. I don't know how true that is, but you know, maybe the worst movie that was ever made intentionally to be a good movie. Cause I mean, you know, there's like Sharknado and stuff like that, but those are like obviously made to be like entertainingly bad. Whereas the room was intentionally, or I should say was made with the intent to be good and turned out to be the worst movie, I guess in that regard. I don't know. Right. Cause you think you see movies in trailers like father figures or, you know, grown ups or stuff like that. And you think to yourself, how could these movies ever possibly be made to be good, right? They just look like quick bucks for the people involved in them. And maybe that is the, I guess, thought process behind it, but The Room actually was made to be good, and it was not. So if you haven't seen it, you should go see it. The Disaster Artist is actually based on the book, which is the the retelling of how the worst movie ever made was made that way, right? So it's The Disaster Artist, the movie, is based on a book, which is based on a movie. But... Regardless, I want to go see that one. Didn't get to see it at TIFF. I think I mentioned that before in the podcast. And another movie I did not get to see at TIFF was The Shape of Water, directed by Guillermo del Toro. He of Pan's Labyrinth, Pacific Rim, you know, Crimson Peak. So I've always been fond of him, and he apparently is quite fond of, maybe not me, but of Toronto, as he films here quite often. I remember they were filming The Shape of Water here. So I'm excited to see those movies. And we also got an interview. I think I also mentioned this a few episodes ago. I got a... An interview with my friend Cody Piper. He is very much a fan of Godzilla and monster movies. So in the spirit of The Shape of Water, which is kind of related to The Creature of the Black Lagoon in terms of a love letter, I suppose. But it's related in the sense that they're, you know, both about monsters. So 
Cody and I had a fun discussion about Godzilla and here in America and in Japan. So that will be in the next episode as well. But for now, thank you for listening. This has been episode 13 of Houston We Have a Podcast. Good night. Every kiss is a door. Can I knock on yours? Can we knock a little more? If it does.